Hello and welcome to Calling All Cars from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors. Calling all cars, attention all cars, attention all Tuolumne County Sheriff cars, broadcast number 55, a murder at the Tuttleton Schoolhouse, suspect unknown, that is all. Well, Dr. Lindsay, you ought to know the sales story of Rio Grande crack gasoline by now. Ed Libert. Oh, Bill, the audience knows that story by heart. Oh, you mean that one about Rio Grande crack gasoline powering more police cars in California and Arizona than any other brand? Yes. Well, tell them something else then. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, here's an interesting point. Do you realize that the success of this program depends on several hundred listeners getting up after every broadcast? Going to a nearby Rio Grande service station and saying... I just heard calling all cars, and I want to try that Rio Grande crack gasoline. Well, let's not ask everybody to do that tonight. Tomorrow morning will do. But I hope our audience does realize that we put on this show once a week, then we spend the rest of the week gathering data to give you another good show, and we can't hear your applause. Neither can the Rio Grande Oil Company. The only way we can tell if you like calling all cars, and if you want this show to go on... It's for you to go to a service station and ask for Rio Grande cracked gasoline. I don't care how you say it. Ask for calling all cars gasoline if you wish. But let's hear from you. And now, on with the show. It is with great pleasure that we now introduce the man under whose direction the investigation of tonight's crime was conducted. Sheriff Jack H. Dombacher of Tuolumne County. Good evening. It is an honor to be permitted to speak to the largest radio audience in the West, the audience of Calling All Cars. I have listened with keen interest to the cases of those fine peace officers, Jim Davis, Bodie Wallman... John Black and others which have already been broadcast. My work in policing a more rural territory naturally embraces problems different from those faced by the police chiefs of metropolitan communities. Though, because of less populous centers, our crime rate is lower, still it often happens that our crimes are more difficult to solve. Such was the case with the story you're about to hear tonight. The murderer, the last person one would logically suspect had carefully planned and accomplished the crime, and would be free today had it not been for modern police science and the technical assistance of that eminent criminologist, Dr. E.O. Heinrich of the University of California. This is one of the most interesting cases I have ever worked on. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. late afternoon, some years ago in Tuttletown, a small community in Northern California. 
Hank Turner is sitting in his parlor, waiting for his son to return from work in the lumber mill. Hank is annoyed about something and pays scant attention to the day-old San Francisco paper he is idly scanning. He hears footsteps and the knob turning in the door. Uh, that you, Herb? Yes, sir. Come in here. Come in. Well, what's in the paper today? Nothing. Letter come for you today. Oh, yeah? Where is it? There on the table. Well, that's Jim Dandy. Mind if I go up to my room and read it? Yes, I mind. Sit down, boy. I want to talk to you. What is it, Pat? That's the second letter that's come for you in three weeks. And both of them come from that fair town in Texas. Well, what of it? That woman's still writing to you. Well, what if she is? We talked that all out, Herb. I ain't going to have you man up with some woman you hear from to one of them there matrimonial agencies. They only have the best people at that agency. Best people? <laughs> How do you know? She sent me her picture. She told me all about herself. Yeah. And she told you she had a brat. She's been married before. But she's divorced. <laughs> divorced. Yes, and God-fearing people don't get divorced. They stay married. Why, Pap, in, in New York and in Hollywood, lots of people get divorced. That ain't no sin. The church frowns on it. It ain't right. It ain't decent. Alma's decent. Uh, a lot you know. If she couldn't be a good wife to one husband, how do you know she'd be a good wife to you? She writes a mighty pretty letter. Uh, now that won't bake no bread. Well, I'm in love with her. In love with her? Why, you ain't even seen her. You're in love with a picture. In love with some scrawls of ink on a piece of paper. He ain't old enough to know what love is. I'm going on 27, Pat. I was 35 before I married your ma. I know what I'm talking about. He ain't much more than a shirt-tailed brat yet. Look here, Pap. You got to make up your mind sooner or later that I'm a man. <sighs> and what's more, Alma's coming up from Texas next week, and I'm going to marry her. Son, you ain't going to marry her. I forbid it. Pap. I got a mind of my own, and it's made up. I'm going to marry Alma next Tuesday. With the determination of a young man in love, Herb carries out his threat, meets his mail-order bride in San Francisco, journeys with her to Reno where, reversing the usual procedure, he marries her on November 12, 1927. Two days later, Herb brings his bride and her young son back to Tuttletown for the parental blessing. Pat, this... this here's Alma. Hmm? Pleased to meet you, Mr. Turner. Can I call you Paul? What? You see, Pat, we was married up to Reno yesterday. Married, eh? I thought I forbid it. Well, Pap, you, you know the saying is, love will find a way. <laughs> and where be you figuring on living? Why, well, I thought as how we'd light here for a spell. You take a lot for granted, don't you, boy? I'm mighty willing, Paul Turner. I'll learn my keep doing the housework, and, and I can cook right now, I too. told you, boy, I wouldn't Alan have... Alan was awful I... willing, Pap. Why don't you let her stay? Ah. Well, 
I guess we could do with another hand around here. Your ma ain't got as much get up and go as she used to have. Then you give us your blessing, Pat? I ain't a saying as how I do. We'll see. What's that? Uh, some little brat throws a ball through the window. Hey, come back here. Come back, don't try to run away. Why, it's Joey. Oh, I'm sure he didn't mean it, Paul. Joey? Who's Joey? He's Alma's boy, Pap. And mine now. We bung him along. Oh, Alma's boy, eh? Bung the brat with you, did you? Well, if he spends any time around here, I'll take that sort of devilman out of him with a razor strap. Hank Turner's attitude does not change, and poor Joey is the object of his step-grandfather's constant criticism. Whenever Alma objects, Herb, once the first flush of love has subsided, sides with his father. Two years of constant wrangling over the subject of the boy create a strange circumstance in the Turner household. On the night of the 26th of April, 1929, all Tuttletown is in a flurry of excitement. In the rough board schoolhouse, a dance is being held. From the cow ranches and from the gold camps, the countryside flocks to the social. And by nine o'clock, the dance floor is filled with couples strutting through a Virginia reel to the music furnished by Hank Turner and his brother. Outside, Herb sulks in his car. What's the matter, Herb? Ain't you coming in with the social? No. Don't feel like it. How could him? Oh, me and the old woman had another battle. <laughs> Ain't getting along so good, huh? Oh, I, I guess we get along as well as the next one. I reckon all women are alike. Yeah. You know how it is, Herb. We can't get along with them, and we can't get along without them. <laughs> well, see you later, Herb. Good evening, Mrs. Turner. Good evening, Mr. Johnson. Well, Herbert, are you going to sit out here all evening? I told you I didn't want to come to this monkey shine. It looks mighty funny when a woman's husband won't come in and dance with her. I can't dance and you know it. Well, you'll, you'll catch cold sitting out here. And I, I brought you some coffee. That'll warm you up. Thanks. How late are you going to stay? As late as I want to. Well, Mr. Turner... You feel like going to the dance room? Oh, yes, thank you, Mr. Johnson. Hope we do take a turn or two. <laughs> 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 right, right, yeah, there's a line, ain't you? Sure is. Now it makes me feel young again to be dancing. <laughs> young again? I suck, Mrs. Turner. You're feeling chicken. Oh, Mr. Johnson. Sure, please. If you want her Turner's wife, I declare I... <laughs> I think I'd caught you myself. <laughs> you know, uh, I'd like it if you'd call me Pete. All right, Pete. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with her? He's, he's something awful, something awful. He's rising and groaning. Oh, where is he? Outside. You better come quick. Yes, yes, I'm coming. Oh, 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 oh,
A doctor is called from Sonora, and before he can arrive, Herb Turner is dead. The sheriff is called. He orders the body turned over to the coroner for autopsy, and he and a deputy get the names and addresses of the guests at the party. The next morning, Sheriff Dombacher and a deputy are seated in the sheriff's office discussing the case as they await the findings of the coroner. You know, Ed, I'm positive that guy was murdered. Well, well, what makes you so sure? All you have to go on is circumstantial evidence. I realize that. But I think we can find the murderer and convict him on that evidence. We've got the cup that the victim drank the coffee from and this empty vial I picked up near the car last night. What was in it? I don't know. But I've put in a call for the druggist who sold it. I'm expecting him up here, and I've asked him to bring his poison register. Poison register? You think Turner was poisoned? Yes. Come in. Uh, uh, I'm Edward Swallow. You sent for me? Yes, Mr. Swallow. Sit down, please. You brought your record of poison sales? Oh, oh, oh yes, sir. It's right here. I have here an empty bottle from your drugstore. There's a number on the label. 1263. Have you a record of that sale? Let me see. Let me see. Uh, 1263. Oh, yes, sir. Yes, sir. Here it is. What was the sale? Uh, eighth of an ounce of strychnine. Strychnine? What did I tell you, Ed? Well, still that doesn't prove anything. Well, when I find an empty poison bottle and a dead man within six feet of each other, I begin to put two and two together. Who did you sell this strychnine to, Mr. Swallow? A, uh, uh, Mrs. Joe Williams, sir. She said she wanted to poison a dog that had been killing her chickens. Do you know this Mrs. Williams? Have you ever seen her before? No, sir. Would you recognize her if you saw her again? Yes, I think I would. That's fine, Mr. Swallow. We may call upon you for an identification. Now, if you'll let me have the page out of your register that has Mrs. Williams' signature on it... Oh, I couldn't let you do that, sir. The law says I must keep the record. Well, I'm the law, Mr. Swallow. Yes, sir, but I... The reason you're required to keep a record of all sales of poison is to be of assistance in just such cases as this. Uh, Yes, sir, I I suppose that's so. Well, uh, very well, then. Here's the page. Thank you, Mr. Swallow. And we'll let you know when we need your valued assistance again. Oh, uh, uh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Uh, Good day. Good day, Mr. Swallow. Now, Ed, we're getting places. Well, not that I can notice. Well, stick around and watch this case grow. Oh, good morning, Doctor. Morning, Sheriff. Well, have you completed the autopsy? Yeah. And? A man died of strychnine poison. Just as I thought. Well, how did you know? I just finished tracing the sale of the bottle I found near his car. It contains strychnine. Undoubtedly, under analysis, the coffee cup will show strychnine. Yeah, which doesn't prove he was murdered at all. He could have poured the strychnine into the coffee himself, thrown the bottle away, and committed suicide. He could have, but he didn't. I'm going to question everyone who was at that dance last night until I get the information I'm after. Painstakingly, Sheriff Dombacher questions the guests who had attended the Tuttletown dance. He learns from witnesses that Alma Turner had carried the fatal cup of coffee to her husband. He learns that at least one person saw her stirring the cup in a dark corner. Then he interviews a Mrs. Ruby Carter. Mrs. Carter, you were at the dance the other night? Yes, sir. I understand that Mrs. Turner took a cup of coffee out to her husband shortly before his death. Is that right? Mm, I believe she did. Did you see her carry the cup out to him? Well, not exactly. But I was sitting near the door talking to some friends. 
And Mrs. Turner came by with a cup of coffee in her hand. Someone bumped her and she spilled something. Well, of the coffee on your dress? Yes. Well, it wasn't her fault, really. But I couldn't help feeling put out about it. The dress is ruined. Have you got it here? Why, yes. In the cupboard. Do you mind showing it to me? No, of course not. I don't see what you want to look at it for. Well, I've got my reasons, Mrs. Carter. Well, just a minute. I'll, I'll fetch it. Here it is. Just look at them coffee stains. Ain't it a shame? Yes, it is, Mrs. Carter. Uh, these are the stains here? Yes, right there on the skirt. Mrs. Carter, I'll have to take this skirt with me. What for? For evidence. Well, I don't know what you're talking about. But if you want that dress, you'll have to pay me what it's worth. Well, I thought you said it's ruined. Well, it is, but I can still use it around the house. Well, I think we can arrange to pay you for it. I can't for the life of me see what you want with it. Well, I'm not at liberty to tell you now, Mrs. Carter. But I've got a hunch you'd be surprised if you knew what else was in those stains besides coffee. <laughs> Dombacher turns over the evidence he has collected to C.H. Grayson, District Attorney of Tuolumne County. And he immediately consults the distinguished criminologist, Dr. E.O. Heinrich, who carefully examines all the items. Several days go by, and then Dr. Heinrich makes his report to Mr. Grayson. Well, Dr. Heinrich, what's the verdict? The sheriff's hunch was correct. Uh, We'll begin at the beginning. First, I examined the poison register from the Tuolumne Drugstore. I found the handwriting of the signature, Mrs. Joe Williams, to be similar to the examples of the handwriting of Mrs. Herbert Turner submitted to me. Similar, Doctor. But are they identical? In my opinion, they are. If necessary, I am prepared to demonstrate their identity by the customary methods of photomicrographic enlargement. That's fine. Now, uh, how about the coffee cup? In the cup, I found a residue. On the outside of the cup, I found stains. Both residue and stains contained evaporated coffee, milk, and strychnine. Enough strychnine to cause death? More than enough. Of course, it could have been suicide. I personally doubt that. Why? Do you remember how I examined the car in which Turner met his death? Yes, I remember you threw a reflection of sunlight against the fenders and body. Right. I noticed in the strong reflected light some stains of foreign substance. Yes. I analyzed those stains. They contained original undissolved crystals of strychnine. They were deposited in such a position on the door and fender of the car that they could only be deposited in the act of spilling the coffee, Uh Uh, not as a result of coughing or spewing the liquid, as the victim might have done himself. Then you conclude... uh... Uh, That the polluted coffee was given to him. I have further reason to believe that. And what is that? I have analyzed the coffee stains on the red silk dress sent to me. And what did you find? The stains on that dress were caused by the coffee spilled by Mrs. Turner, weren't they? Uh, so we understand. Uh, those stains contain strychnine. Then Mrs. Turner placed the strychnine in the coffee, carried it out to her husband, and served him the poisonous drink? It would appear so from the evidence, although it's all circumstantial. Hmm. Then Sheriff Dumbacher's hunch was correct. <laughs> Howdy, Sheriff. Hello, Mr. Turner. You found the murder of my boy yet, Sheriff? I think we have. 
Is Mrs. Turner at home? You you don't mean Elmy? I mean your son's wife. Well, Elmy thought as how she'd done it. Always knowed she'd do her no good. But I'd step and hide Oh, wait a minute, Mr. Turner. I haven't said anything. But Elmy did do it now, didn't she, Sheriff? I'm not saying she did or did not. But I want to know whether you'll sign a complaint charging your daughter-in-law with murder. I'll be glad to. Give me them there papers. Here you are. There. Now, does that make it legal? Yes. Oh, Elmy. Elmy. Yes, Paul? Come out here. You got a visitor. Uh, a visitor? Well, who's come to see me, Paul? Is it Mr. Johnson? No, it ain't Pete Johnson. It's the sheriff. He's come to take you to jail for murder and harm. What? What? You, you're fooling me, Paul. I ain't a fooling you. Tell her, Sheriff. Mrs. Turner, I arrest you for the murder of your husband. You arrest me? For murdering her? No. No, no, I... Well, I didn't kill him. Well, I loved him. He was the only man in my life. No. No, no, I, I'm, I'm not guilty. I'm not... I swear I'm not. On May 14th, 1929, less than a month after the fatal Tuttletown dance, Alma Turner comes up for preliminary hearing in the town of Columbia in Tuolumne County. The courtroom is so crowded with curious town folks and ranchers from the surrounding country that the trial is adjourned to an open-air dance floor in the town square. Here, amid a pastoral scene, while calm spring sunshine filters through lazily waving tree branches, while sparrows twitter and meadowlarks sing, a woman goes on trial for her life. District Attorney Grayson presents his damning evidence item by item. After examination of the attending physician and the coroner, he calls Mr. Swallow to the stand. Now, what is your name, please? Uh, uh, Edward Swallow. And where do you reside? Swallow me, sir. Uh, what is your occupation? Uh, uh, pharmacist. On the 26th of April, did you have occasion to sell any poison of such a nature that would require the signature of the purchaser? Uh, yes, I did. To whom was the sale made? Uh, a person assigned the name Mrs. Joe Williams. What kind of poison was purchased? Strychnine, sir. Uh, had you ever seen this Mrs. Joe Williams before? No, I hadn't. Was the signature of Mrs. Joe Williams attached to the record in your presence? Uh, uh, yes, it was. Uh, will the defendant please stand up? Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, Mr. Swallow, is the lady who is now standing the same person who made the per poison purchase that day? I uh, believe it is. But are you positive? Yes, I am. Uh, thank you, Mr. Swallow. <clears throat> Your witness. Mr. Swallow, I have heard you testify that you are positive the defendant purchased strychnine from you and signed her name as Mrs. Joe Williams. How are you positive? I'm waiting for your answer. I can't answer that. Just you and the purchaser were in the store at the time the poison was purchased. Yes, sir. Now, you cannot tell me the reason why you so positively identify this woman. No, I can't. What was the color of her hair? Tell me quickly without looking. Uh, it was brown. Yes, the defendant's hair is brown. But, Mr. Swallow, have you any idea how many other women in the world have brown hair? Have you any idea, Mr. Swallow, how many shades of hair coloration are referred to as brown? Why, uh, no, I haven't. Then how can you be so positive in this identification you've made? 
Well, I got a small store and I don't sell poison every day. I remember the people I sell it to. And you are positive that this is the same woman? Yes, I am. That is all. Your Honor, I submit to the court at this time that there is sufficient evidence in my mind to bind the defendant over to trial in the superior court. And I will ask that she be held to answer for trial in the superior court. Has the attorney for the defense any remarks? We have no evidence to offer, Your Honor. However, I might say at this time, if the court please, the defendant has not been informed of her rights. Neither has she been charged with anything in this court that I know of. I have not seen any indictment or any complaint or anything at all. Your Honor, if my worthy colleague has not seen a complaint, then he has not looked for it. The record is here for him to scan if he wishes to examine it. I feel that the prosecution has shown just and sufficient reason why the defendant should be bound over to the superior court for a trial on charge of murder. In view of the testimony just had, it appears to me that the offense of murder has been committed and that there is sufficient cause to believe that the defendant, Alma Turner, is guilty thereof. Therefore, I order that she be held to answer the same and that she be committed to the sheriff of the county of Tuolumne to await trial on the charge of murder. Committed to a cell in the Sonora jail, Alma Turner loudly protests her innocence. As District Attorney Grayson knits together the last vagrant thread of the splendid evidence provided him by Sheriff Dombaka. Then the District Attorney holds a brief conference with the attorney for the defense. Well, I don't know what defense you plan for your client, but I can assure you that whatever it is, we'll beat you in court. What makes you so certain? I'm so certain that I don't mind telling you some of the points you'll prove before the jury. What are they? Well, you already know we can prove that Mrs. Turner purchased a strychnine. Furthermore, we'll prove that she placed the strychnine in Mr. Turner's coffee, that she carried the coffee cup from the schoolhouse out to the car, that she herself gave the coffee to Turner and in so doing spilt some of it on the car. I'm still not convinced that you can prove all those things. May I inform you that this is not guesswork, that every fact I've stated we will prove on the sworn reports of the findings of Dr. Heinrich on the evidence we've procured. Hmm. In that case, I had better consult my client. Yes, I think you had. On June 4th, following the consultation between Alma Turner and her attorney, she is led before Superior Judge Warren. Alma Turner, you are charged with murder. How do you plead? Guilty. And five days later, in spite of her last-minute plea that she had entered a suicide pact with her husband, Alma Turner, pale, frightened-looking, young and small, faces Judge Warren again. Solemnly, he pronounces sentence. Court believes that the defendant, Alma Turner should be required to suffer the full penalty of imprisonment for life. And the court recommends to the board of prison directors and also to the governor of California that if application for parole or pardon is ever made, that it be denied. The court, believing that this was a cold-blooded, premeditated, 
Murder. Here it is, that commercial announcement we lost at the start of the show. Well, of course, you know, we didn't really lose it. We just tried to call your attention in an unusual way to Rio Grande Cracked Gasoline. We thought you might take it more seriously if we appealed to you as actors seeking applause. We never know whether you like calling all cars or not unless you go into a Rio Grande service station and tell the dealer that you heard the show. Give him your criticisms or suggestions. He will pass them on to the Rio Grande representative, and Rio Grande will tell us. And while you're in the station, fill up with Rio Grande cracked gasoline, a tank full of police car performance. Calling all cars, attention all cars, attention all to Omni Sheriff cars. Cancellation of broadcast 55 regarding a murder. Suspect in this case is now in custody. That is all. is written and produced by William N. Robeson. This is your narrator, Frederick Lindsley, bidding you good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company. <laughs> <laughs>